0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I have a few things I'd like to let you guys know about. Some family business to start with. First of all, I want to remind you guys that our students are leaving for camp tomorrow. Uh, going to Longview Ranch in Tennessee. So I want to just, first of all, to our kids who are here who are going, I hope you guys have a great time. And I want all of us to be in prayer this week for our students, that they would stay safe on the travels, that they'd have fun. And more importantly, that this would be an awesome time for them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So please be in prayer for our students this week. I wanna remind you guys about next Sunday. We have our family worship service next Sunday. We have four people getting baptized next Sunday, which is a real blessing. We're gonna be taking the Lord supper together as a church family. And just a reminder that childcare next week is birth up to three years. So we're excited to have the kids in here worshiping with us next week. It's going to be an awesome time. So make sure you're here next Sunday. I want to remind you about Wave Camp. Guys, please, please, please sign up your student for Wave Camp grades one through five, June 27th through July 1st. It's going to be an awesome time. Would really love for all the kids to be there. Uh, to please register, go to gocoastal.org summer events. And by the way, if you're planning on sending your child, please, register as soon as possible. Uh, That's really helpful for us as we're planning the event to get registrations in. So please register as soon as possible. Well, before we get into the message this morning, I want to take a moment to recognize two different occasions. So first of all, happy Father's Day. I know we've said it a few times already, but happy Father's Day to all of the dads out there. I am continually honored and humbled to be a part of a church family that has so many godly men And dads who love and who lead their families well, men who have integrity, uh, men who are raising their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So to the dads that are here this morning, thank you so much. I am honored and humbled to be a part of this church family with you. So as our way of loving you this morning, to our dads, you might have noticed back there, we have a lot of donuts. So So all the men... I need you to take at least one donut, two if you want. Uh, And really, we have plenty, so anybody who wants a donut, please help yourself. Uh, Not right now, uh, after the service. Uh, That might be a little bit distracting. And in just a minute, uh, I want to pray over you guys, and I want to pray over the dads in our church because, listen, the family is the foundation not only of the society but of the church, too. I think one of the greatest needs that we have today are men, men who are willing to stand up And do what God says and love and lead their homes well. And I am so humbled and honored to be a part of a church family with so many godly men. So thank you guys. I want to pray over you in just a moment. But I also wanted to take a moment this morning to recognize another occasion. And I thought it was fitting given what we talked about last week. So if you were here last week, you remember from James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13, we studied together the sin of partiality. And there's no greater example in our society and in our history of the sin of partiality than the sins of racism and slavery. And you guys might know that on this day, 157 years ago, uh, where the, the final slaves were set free, in June 19th, 1865, in Galveston, Texas, this is a day that's come to be known as Juneteenth. Uh, It's only recently been recognized as a federal holiday, but it's also been recognized in many other times as well. So this morning, we wanted just to take a moment to remember, yes, the sin of the past, but more than that, to celebrate. To celebrate, on the one hand, the freedom that we have as Americans, but more than that, to celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ. To celebrate that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings freedom. Slavery is grounded in sin, but freedom is grounded in the gospel. And this is important for us as Christians to remember because listen, we live in a nation that's had a lot of conversation around these issues, especially in the last few years. And I firmly believe that the solution, that unity, these things are not going to come from anyone in Washington, D.C. These things come from the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ. Freedom and unity come through the gospel. Jesus is the one who breaks down walls that divide people. So I believe as Christians, we have the answer, and the answer is Christ. So here's what I'd like to do to start out the sermon this morning. I want to take a minute and pray. I want to pray for our dads, and I want to pray for our nation together. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. What a wonderful morning of worship it has already been, Lord, as we've sung about how you are a firm foundation for our lives as we've cried out to you, Lord, to make us more like Jesus. What a wonderful time it's already been. And Father, I wanna take a minute to honor the dads in this church, Lord. I am so incredibly humbled to be in a church family with so many godly men, Lord, who love you and who are raising their families well. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen these men, Lord. I pray that you would help them to grow in their faith, help them to follow hard after Jesus each and every day and that their families would follow their lead. Lord, I wanna pray for those for whom Father's Day might be a difficult day, Lord. Maybe someone who uh, desires to be a dad but has not had that opportunity. Lord, maybe someone who has lost their dad, Lord, I want to pray for them as well, that you would be near to the brokenhearted, as your word says. Father, I thank you for these men. Strengthen them, Lord. And Lord, I want to lift up our nation. Father, we have been so divided over many issues, Lord, and the least of which not being race. And so, Father, as we saw last week from your word, partiality has no place in the church, but we know that freedom and unity come through the gospel of Jesus Christ the one who breaks down barriers between people that keep us divided. So Father, I pray that the gospel would go forth in power throughout our nation and that the result would be greater unity and greater love. And so Father, bless us as we study your word this morning. Help us to understand this challenging text and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I wanna begin this morning by talking to you about a guy named Charles Blondin. Anybody ever heard of Charles Blondin? I hadn't either uh, until I read this story that I thought was pretty cool. So, Charles Blondin in the 1800s was an acrobat and a tightrope walker. And he became famous in the summer of 1860 when he used to walk across a tightrope that spanned all of Niagara Falls. It's like a quarter of a mile. And he started getting crowds that would come from all over to see him do this incredible feat. And so one time, there's this crowd there, and they're cheering, and they're ooing and aahing. And so he approaches this tightrope, and he says, who thinks I can push a wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And they all cheer, and they clap. Yeah, that's awesome. He says, okay, who thinks I can push a wheelbarrow across this tightrope with a man in it? They all, they're still cheering. They're still clapping. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Then he says, all right, any volunteers? <laughs> there were crickets. (laughs) Now, they said they believed that he could do that. They said they believed that he was able to walk across the tightrope with a man in the wheelbarrow, but their actions revealed that they really didn't believe that at all. That is exactly what James is gonna teach us this morning, that our faith in Jesus Christ is more than just a profession that we make. It is more than just words that we say but it is demonstrated by the way that we live our lives. You see, Jesus Christ never called us to make believers. The Great Commission does not say, go into all the world and make converts of all nations. It says, make disciples. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who submits their life to the lordship of Jesus and everything. As it says in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus teaches us that discipleship is costly. It means to take up our cross and follow him. It means to deny ourselves daily. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man to come, he bids him come and die. It is costly to be a follower of Jesus. It changes everything. And what James is going to challenge in this text this morning is this idea that becoming a Christian is cheap. This idea that becoming a Christian is easy. This idea that I can come to Christ and remain unchanged. This could be referred to as easy believism or cheap grace. It's this idea that, man, once I become a Christian and God has forgiven me, I've got my fire insurance, so the rest of my life really don't matter very much. James is going to challenge that idea head on. He is going to show us this, the main point of our sermon this morning. Authentic faith will demonstrate itself in good works but faith that does not lead to works is dead. And my hope, my heart in this sermon this morning is that as Christians, we would hear this message and we'd be motivated to do what Jesus said, which is to, um, to let our light shine before others so that they would see our good works and bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at this text together. James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That last sentence is the main point of our sermon this morning and the first bullet point I have for you, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And James is going to go on to give us, I believe, four characteristics of dead faith, four things that are true of dead faith. And the first is that we learn from verse 14 is this, dead faith is not saving faith. Dead faith is not saving faith. Let's dig into verse 14. He begins with a rhetorical question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Let's make a few observations. First of all, this is a said faith. This is a profession of faith. Someone says he has faith, but that faith does not lead to good works, does not lead to obedience, does not lead to action or transformation in their life. And then he asks the question, can that faith save him? So if you have your Bibles open or you have one of the pew Bibles open, I give you permission even to do this in one of those. Take a pen and circle that little word, that. Can that faith save him? That word's really important. And here's why. When we're reading this text, we need to pay careful attention to how James is defining his terms. When James is talking about faith, he is defining it here as something that is merely a profession, as something that does not lead to action. He is de- he's not saying that faith cannot save. He's describing a certain kind of faith that is not really faith at all. It's useless. He's saying, can this kind of faith save something that is merely a profession without any action? The implied answer is, of course not. And he goes on, whenever he talks about it in this text, he qualifies it. He says, faith by itself, faith without works is useless. So he's describing the kind of faith that can't save. In contrast to that, church, what is the kind of faith that can save, according to scripture? Saving faith in Jesus Christ, it includes all of us. It includes the whole person. It includes the mind as we know the truth of the gospel in our mind. There's an intellectual component but it also involves the heart and the emotions as we love God and our desires are transformed so that we want to follow him and we have a personal trust in Jesus Christ as our savior in our hearts. So it's the mind and it's the heart, but it's also transformation of our actions. Faith leads to a transformed life. Faith leads to works. And it is this last point that James is emphasizing so strongly He's teaching us that if our faith is real, it's going to change everything about our lives. So first of all, dead faith can't save. But second, dead faith is all talk. Dead faith is all talk and no action. Think about the illustration he gives in verses 15 and 16. Let's put it in our terms, shall we? Let's fast forward six months from now. It's December. And you know, who knows what Virginia weather's gonna be like in December, but let's say it's a cold day. Uh, you know, the next day it'll be 80, but let's say it's like 30 this day in December. You just came from church, you just had the best sermon you've ever heard in your life, and then you're going out to lunch after church, and you're walking into the restaurant, and it's a cold day, and you see a guy sitting outside the restaurant. He's extremely thin. He looks like he hasn't had a meal in a long time, and he's wearing a T-shirt, and it's 30 degrees outside, and you walk by, And you smile and you say, hey, God bless you, brother. I hope that you can be warmed and filled. You walk in the restaurant with the heat rolling. You have a delicious meal, stuffing your face, and then you leave. Did that do that man any good at all? That kind of faith is useless, is what James is saying. It is a faith that does not lead to action. And it's even worse than not, not saying anything at all. This is a faith that is dead, a faith that is useless. What he's teaching us is that it is quite possible for us to say the right things and for our faith to still be useless. This kind of all talk faith, it's no good to God and it's no good to our neighbor either contrast to that biblical faith overflows with love for other people this is how the apostle paul defines faith itself in galatians 5 6 he says for in christ jesus there is neither neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love In Galatians, the issue at hand was, hey, there were some people saying you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, no, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ, but he defines faith as something that is actively working through love for other people. Dead faith, however, is all talk. So dead faith also separates faith from works. It creates a false dichotomy between the two, if you will. Consider verse 18, James is now anticipating an objection that he might get from someone, and he says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as if the two could be separated. Then he says, show me your faith apart from your works, which of course you can't. And then he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, works are the things that demonstrate our faith. Our obedience, action in our lives demonstrates that our faith is genuine. And by the way, this is exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew chapter seven in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these guys, they look like sheep. They've got the sheep's clothing on, but they're not sheep. And how can we tell the difference between a sheep and a fake sheep? You will recognize them That's how you recognize them. Jesus' teaching here is clear. If you see bad fruit, it is evidence of a bad tree. And if you see good fruit, it is evidence of a good tree. So we cannot separate the two things. Last thing about dead faith is this. It's merely intellectual. Intellectual. It's merely intellectual. Now that word merely is important because faith certainly has an intellectual component to it. We need to know the truth about God in our minds. But let me put it this way. While faith is essential, while knowledge is essential to faith, knowledge is not sufficient to faith. While knowledge is essential, it is not sufficient. And he continues in his argument here in verse 19. I love this. He said, you believe that God is well. Great, you do well. Want a cookie? I mean, even the demons believe that. And what good is that doing them? At least they have enough good sense to shudder when they consider God. Even the demons believe that. What he's showing us is that it is possible for us to have perfect theology, to cross all of our theological uh, T's and dot all of our theological I's. Man, you've got it all down pat. It's possible to memorize all the great Bible verses. It's possible for us to know all the Sunday school answers. It's even possible, get this, for us to have an emotional experience about it because the demon shuddered. It's possible for us to have all of that and still have a faith that's dead and still have a faith that's useless. I mean, just think about it. There are secular Bible scholars teaching in universities who have forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever know, and they hate it. I'm sure many of you probably know atheists who know the Bible way better than us church people do. Why? So they can attack it. Knowledge by itself cannot transform. Dead faith is someone just saying, oh yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God and it makes no difference in their life. That's a dead faith. And it cannot save So he goes on to describe what dead faith is like in these verses. And now he's going to show us two examples by contrast of authentic faith. He's going to give us two examples of authentic faith. And the first is Abraham. The first is Abraham. And of course it's Abraham. I mean, right, this is James, the pastor of Jerusalem church, writing to Jewish Christians. Abraham was the man. I mean, Abraham is the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Of course, he's going to use Abraham as an example, right? And he used a particular incident from Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 22, one of the most famous and moving stories in the Bible, where God tests Abraham's faith and calls on him to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And Abraham obeys. They make this journey to Mount Moriah three days. And just at the very last moment, God stays Abraham's hand. And he says, now I know that you love me for you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. James is using that story to illustrate what he is talking about with faith and works. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, his work of offering his son. His faith is what is motivating it. It is active in it. But then he says, and faith was completed by his works, I think a better translation would say, matured. The idea that it is his faith that is motivating his works, and then uh, in a sort of a cyclical way, his works are then strengthening and maturing his faith. And he goes on to say that this is a fulfillment of what was said in Genesis 15:6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness the ultimate evidence, the ultimate fulfillment that his faith was real was when he obeyed when he faced the ultimate test. So here's the thing. I believe Abraham was saved before Genesis 22. I mean, think about the timeline here. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram out of Ur and he gives him these promises that he's going to make him into a great nation and he's going to bless him and all these things. It's in Genesis 15 that we read that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And yet then in Genesis 22, it was shown in the ultimate test that his faith was genuine, that it was real. And it's teaching us the same point, that it is action in our lives. It is transformation in our lives that demonstrates that our faith is real. So he uses Abraham as his first example, but the second one's maybe a little more interesting. It's Rahab. Rahab is his second example in verse 25. Now, of course he's gonna use Abraham. He's the patriarch of the nation of Israel. But Rahab? Y'all know about Rahab, right? She was a Canaanite prostitute. And yet she is being held up as a hero of faith. Why is he doing that? I think to show us that it doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what you've done. Anyone who comes to God in faith and that faith transforms their life is an example of what this is talking about all the way from Abraham to Rahab. And I love the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter two. You know, when Joshua sends out two spies to spy out the land of Jericho before the conquest, and then Rahab gives this incredible profession of faith because she'd heard about what God had done in the Exodus. She placed her faith in the God of Israel and her faith was demonstrated to be real by her actions when she hid the spies from the authorities and she sent them out by another way. Both Abraham's story and Rahab's story are making the same point. Faith can only be demonstrated by action. And without action, faith is not real. Now I've used this illustration before, but it's helpful for me. I want you to think about it this way. The way that you can tell whether or not the gospel is a reality in your life or it's just head knowledge is, is your life different? Has my life been transformed? Is it leading to action? So think about it this way. Let's say I came in here late and ran up at the last second to come and preach this morning. And I look all frazzled and and worried and out of sorts. And I say, hey guys, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm sorry. Uh, My car broke down about a half a mile down the road. I had to walk the rest of the way. And then when I'm crossing 17 to get here on foot, I got hit by a tractor trailer uh, going about 60 miles an hour. But I'm good now. I'm ready to preach. Who would believe me? (laughs) Who would believe me? You know why you wouldn't believe me? Because if I got hit by a tractor trailer, I would look different. It's a great weight loss program because you'd probably lose a few limbs. I would look different if I got hit by a tractor trailer. And let me assure you of something this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ hits a lot harder than that. If your life has really been impacted by the gospel, you're gonna look different. You cannot come face to face with the creator and redeemer of the universe and surrender your life to him and be the same afterwards. That's what James is saying. Saying if we say that this has happened, but nothing is different, there's no transformation, there's no desire for repentance and holiness and purity. If there's no good works of righteousness in our lives, then it's not real. That's a hard truth, guys, but it's true. It's true. It's possible to profess faith in Jesus without possessing faith in Jesus. It's one of the most dangerous places we can be spiritually speaking. That's why he tells us that faith without works is dead. So I know this is a heavy sermon this morning. It's heavy for me to preach and think about, but this is so important. Is our faith in Jesus real or is it all talk? But I think for the rest of the sermon, it's time to address a pretty big elephant in the room. And I wanna name this elephant Paul, right? Because it's pretty common, not pretty, it's very common to read this text that we just read. uh, And for people to say that it contradicts the apostle Paul particularly in books like Romans and Galatians, because Paul's big emphasis, man, we are justified by faith and faith alone, not by works of the law. We are saved by faith in Jesus, not by works. So it's very common to pit these two against each other. Martin Luther, right? The reformer, one of my heroes, man, I've got his biographies on my shelf. He was not a big fan of James for this reason. He referred to it as an epistle of straw for this reason. I mean, on a surface level, let me just read to you two verses back to back to set the table here. Romans 3.28, for we we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? So you can see reading these two verses, it seems like there's a tension here. And yes, when you take two Bible verses out of context and you read them side by side, it's quite possible to believe that there is a tension. But I believe with all my heart that James and Paul were in full agreement on the question of faith and works. And I'd like to show you what I mean. And I think this is so important for us to have a biblical understanding of so that we understand how we can more clearly honor God. So we need to talk together for a few minutes about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification, that's a big word. Let me define it. Both Paul and James use the word justified in the two, words that we just, the two verses that we just read. Justification is a legal term that means to be declared righteous. The doctrine of justification simply means that when a person turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ, they are declared righteous by God. They're declared righteous because their sin has been imputed to Jesus on the cross and he bore the penalty for it in their place. And that Jesus's righteousness has been imputed to them. So the question that we have to consider is, are we justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in Jesus? Or are we justified by our works? Are we justified by what we do? Do we bring anything to the table in our salvation? Well, let me emphasize to you guys, I believe with all my heart and we believe at Coastal, we are justified, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet, justifying faith is never alone, but it always leads to transformation and good works in our lives. So let me show you what I mean by all this. First of all, let me emphasize that Paul and James are consistent. Paul and James are consistent. Let me give you four reasons why Paul and James are consistent. First of all, the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant word, and there are no contradictions in it. To say that there are contradictions in the Bible is to call God a liar. Because while there are multiple human authors, there is one divine author behind all of it. It is the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write what he wrote and James to write what he wrote. We can't pit them against one another. So the Bible is God's word. That's the first reason why. And when we come across a difficult passage of scripture or passages that seem to be in tension, our gut reaction ought to be to harmonize them, to see that they're puzzle pieces that go together together rather than to pit them against each other. That's the first reason. The second reason is that I think James and Paul knew each other, were friends and co-laborers in the gospel. And I think we can demonstrate that from scripture. I think the book of James was written really early in about the mid 40s AD. And after that, we see Paul and James working together at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. We see them working together again in Acts chapter 21. Why would they be co-laborers in the gospel if they disagreed on the gospel? So historically speaking, I believe that they knew one another, but now let's get into the Bible here. I think pitting them against one another is based on a misinterpretation and ripping James 2.24, kicking and screaming out of context. Let's put James 2.24 back up on the screen. Let's study this together. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now we get hung up on this idea of not by faith alone, but how has James defined faith? Remember how I had you circle that word that earlier in verse 14? James has described the kind of faith that he's talking about in this passage already. He's saying, can that faith save a person, a faith that's all talk, a faith that's merely intellectual, a faith that doesn't lead to action? He's saying, you're not justified by that kind of faith alone. You're justified by a faith that works, by a faith that leads to action, by a faith that leads to transformation in our lives. So here's the deal. I think that when we pit this verse against Paul, we're ripping this verse out of context because when he says not by faith alone, he's saying not by a dead faith alone, but rather a faith that works. Final reason, Paul and James are not different in their content. They're different in their emphasis. The writing to different audiences addressing different issues at different times. Paul in Romans and Galatians is contending against those who would say you have to obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And he is emphasizing, no, no, no. It is by faith alone. You don't save yourself by your good works. Jesus saves you. Faith alone. And then James is criticizing those who would hold to some sort of easy believism. This idea, hey, I prayed the prayer, I got my fire insurance, I'm good to go, see you in heaven, can live the rest of my life however I want, it doesn't matter. He's saying, no, faith works, faith leads to action, faith leads to transformation in our lives. Paul's attacking legalism, whereas James is attacking easy believism. Now to quote Luther a little bit more positively, the human race is like a drunk guy on a horse. Uh, After falling off the right side of the horse, he gets back up just to fall off the left side. He's talking about our tendency to veer between two different extreme errors. So think about it this way. Paul is attacking those who keep falling off the right side of the horse by thinking their salvation is up to them. It's up to my good works. It's up to my obedience to earn my way to heaven. He's saying, no, you can't earn your way to heaven. It's faith alone It's Jesus who saves you, not your good works. And now James is talking about the guy who keeps falling off the left side of the horse. The guy who says, now that I'm saved, it doesn't matter. I can sin so that grace may abound, in Paul's words. And he's saying, no, faith leads to works. Faith leads to action. Faith leads to holiness in our lives. They're both riding on the same horse, trying to pull off a guy falling off of each different side, if that makes sense. That's gotta be a big horse. Um, that metaphor kind of fell apart there. But listen, for my last point this morning, I want to give you a little phrase that's been helpful for me. Uh, I've quoted it many times, and it's a way that I like to articulate this in one pithy little statement. We're justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. We're justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. I wish I was smart enough to come up with that, but it doesn't come from me. It comes from the reformer, John Calvin. He said, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. One of the great slogans of the Reformation, they're called the five solas in Latin, that means alone. It was faith alone, sola fide. It's this idea that it's not by our works, but it's by faith alone that we're saved. And he's correcting a misunderstanding of that. He's saying saved by faith alone does not mean a faith that is alone, but it is a faith that leads to works. So how do we put these two parts together? First, we've got to emphasize that we're saved by God's grace alone alone not by our good works. We can never earn our salvation. We're saved by faith alone. Paul wrote in Romans chapter four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if we could earn our salvation, it would no longer be grace. It would be our due. It would be our wages. It would be what we have earned In contrast to that, he says, into the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not by works, it's by faith. And by the way, I think James agrees. James 1.18, of his own will, that's God. He brought us forth, caused us to be born again. How? By our works? By the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God brought us forth when we heard the gospel and we responded to the gospel. We are saved by faith alone, and yet they both agree that our faith will overflow in good works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved as a result of works. We are saved for good works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved for them. That will be the overflow in our lives. That's what we were created in Christ Jesus for, Paul says. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone, but faith works. Think of it like a tree. The tree is not supported by the fruit that it produces. The tree is supported by the roots that go down into the ground. As a Christian, the roots uh, is your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ alone. But if those roots really do go down deep and if that tree is alive, it will bear fruit. The roots are our faith. The fruit are our good works and they're both a part of the same tree. We cannot separate the two. This is why this question matters. And this is why I emphasize this so strongly, guys. This is not some abstract second tier theological question to deliberate about. This is about how you go to heaven. This is about how you get saved. Am I saved? Is there something I've got to do to be saved? or there's some good work I have to do? Do I have to have something better on my resume to go to heaven? The answer is no. We're saved by faith and by faith alone in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save broken sinners like you and me who deserved only his judgment. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later, and when we trust in him by faith and by faith alone, we are declared righteous in God's sight. But that faith is never alone. But as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, it works through love. It transforms our lives. It gives us new desires to flee from sin and to pursue holiness and righteousness, not to live for ourselves anymore, but to live for other people, to give of ourselves for the good of our neighbors. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is not alone. So as we're closing this morning, I wanna invite the worship team to come now. I wanna leave you with two final thoughts based on this text. The first is to examine yourself. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Listen, it is perfectly appropriate for us to go to the tree of faith in our lives and look for fruit. I'm not saying, not talking about perfection here. We all stumble in many ways, James is gonna say in just a few verses. We all sin, we are all broken, we are all struggling. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, the struggle is a sign of life. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction. Which direction are you moving in in your life? Are you moving toward Christ, toward holiness, towards righteousness, or are you staying in the same place? Are you moving backwards? My heart this morning is not to create doubt in the hearts of sincere believers, not at all. My heart is to wake up somebody who's sleeping in a burning house. It is possible to profess faith in Jesus without possessing faith in Jesus, and that's a dangerous place to be. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's scary. And listen, my heart this morning is that you would look at your life, look at the fruit in my life over the last year, over the last 10 years, over how long I've been a Christian. Is my life different? Is my life different? Look for the fruit. Examine yourself. Is my faith just head knowledge or has it changed my heart? Is it just words or has it changed my action? Am I striving for holiness or living in habitual, unrepentant sin? Do I live for love and serving other people or am I using my life only for myself? Examine yourselves and listen, maybe there's someone here who needs to do business with God this morning. You look at your life and you're like, if I'm being honest, I don't know. Listen, we have prayer team members that are here If the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, please don't leave without talking to someone and seeking to have a faith that works. My last takeaway is this. Let your faith work. Followers of Jesus Christ, let us be known for more than just our profession. Let us be known for our actions. Let us be known for our actions. Let it be the overflow of our lives that we would leave our comfort zone daily, getting out of the boat to follow Jesus, even when it's uncomfortable. That we would put away sin in our lives. We would be quick to repent. That we would be quick to love and serve other people. Let's have a faith that is more than just knowledge. It's more than just words, but it's all of us. Connecting it to Father's Day. Dads, let's lead in this area. What a great Father's Day message, right? that we would be men who are leading in our homes by our actions, that we are leading by our examples. Let's strive to be men of character and integrity, leading our homes well. Man, let's strive in our workplaces, wherever we go. Let's strive here at church to love and to serve other people. We could go on and on. Let's strive to have a faith that works, that changes everything. Let's close in prayer. Father, we confess how deeply we need you, how insufficient we are. Lord, I confess in my own heart how hard a message like this is to preach because I know the depths of my own heart, Lord. I know how far I fall short each and every day, how desperately I need you. So Father, help us to have a faith that is more than just knowledge. It's more than just a profession. It's more than just words, but it transforms our lives and it's for the love of you and the love of our neighbors. God, use us for your glory. Make us ambassadors for your kingdom. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.